Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Rappaport, director of the Center of the Study of Constitutional Originalism. And I'd like to welcome everyone to San Diego and to USD for the eighth annual U and Hazel Dawling Foundation Originalism Works in Progress Conference. It's hard to believe that it's been eight years. But we at the Originalism Center are very proud of what these conferences have produced. Um, we believe that they've promoted the production of originalist scholarship and contributed to better originalist scholarship by allowing sophisticated criticisms of originalist work. And it really helped to form a community of originalist scholars, originalist scholars both advocates and critics, who contribute to this work. And so we're very thankful for all the support and the contributions which all of you have made, which really makes this possible. So thank you. Um, each year at the beginning of the conference, I try to briefly review the most important developments within originalism in the last year as I see them. And last year, I spoke about the sad passing of Justice Scalia and whether originalism could survive it. What a difference a year makes. Uh, based on his writings, it appears that Judge Neil Gorsuch would be an originalist justice. And some of the strongest ev evidence of Gorsuch's originalism comes from his Case Western Law Review speech article on Justice Scalia. And the essay suggests, I think, that not only does he seem to be an originalist, but the type of originalist who is near and dear to my heart, at least. Um, first, Judge Gorsuch appears to be a public meaning originalist, advocating that judges look, quote, to text, structure, and history to decide what a reasonable reader at the time of the events in question would have understood the law to be. Significantly, Judge Gorsuch roots originalism in the separation of legislative from judicial power. Gorsuch writes, while legislators may appeal to their own moral convictions and to claims about social utility to reshape the law, judges should apply the law as it is, focusing backward not forward. Judge Gorsuch takes the separation of powers very seriously in a way that's not all that common these days. For example, he asks, if judges were free to legislate, why would the founders have gone to such trouble to impose bicameralism and presentment, only to entrust judges to perform the same essential functions without similar safeguards? Judge Gorsuch views the separation of powers as among the most important liberty-protecting devices of the constitutional design. And he illustrates the problems for liberty from combining powers through the example of a Mexican immigrant who was harmed by the Board of Immigration Appeals. In colorful language that really just echoes Justice Scalia's pen, Gorsuch writes, so that quite literally, an executive agency acting in a faux judicial proceeding and exercising delegated legislative authority purported to overrule an existing judicial declaration about the meaning of existing law 
and apply its new legislative rule retroactively to already completed conduct. Just describing what happened here might be enough to make James Madison head spin, says Gorsuch. And this language combined with Judge Gorsuch's con uh, criticism of the Chevron case suggests that he may be an originalist critic of expansive executive power. Well, I could go on and on with quotations from <laughs> the speech, uh, but let me limit myself to one more point. Um, critics of originalism often emphasize the indeterminacy of the law, as do, I might add, even some friends of originalism. But Judge Gorsuch argues that the indeterminacy of the law is wildly exaggerated, in part because the traditional tools of legal analysis do a remarkable job of eliminating or reducing indeterminacy. How then does such indeterminacy get resolved? Well, I was especially happy to read Judge Gorsuch's argument, which appears to endorse something like what John McGinnis and I have called the 5149 rule. Gorsuch writes, at the end of the day, we may not be able to claim confidence that there's a certain and single right answer to every case. But there's no reason why we cannot make our best judgment depending on and only on conventional legal materials. No reason, too, why we cannot conclude for ourselves that one side has the better of it, even if by a nose, and even while admitting that a disagreeing colleague could see it the other way. Exactly. I could not have said it better myself. Um, of course, there are no assurances with Supreme Court appointments, especially by Republicans. Um, so we probably won't know anything with confidence about Judge Gorsuch, if he gets confirmed, what his um, originalism looks like, if it is an originalism. That said, but the, the prospects of originalism at the Supreme Court seem to be much more promising today than they seemed to be a year ago. Let me now then turn very briefly to the papers accepted for the conference. I uh, just want to go over them just a, a little bit. So last year's conference was very focused in on constitutional theory. But this year's papers, I think, represent um, a, a better balance of theory and interpretation. So there are three papers principally devoted to theory, I think. Um, but there are three other papers that concern the interpretation of parts of the Constitution, one involving the enumerated powers principally, another involving Article II, and a third involving the First Amendment. And finally, there's uh, a last paper, which is a very innovative paper contributing concerning both the, fourth, the 14th Amendment and a new approach to originalism. And as always, the papers include some working within originalism and some criticizing it or seeking to change it. Well, putting together a conference of this sort involves a great deal of work, and so I'd like to thank various people, as, as I do each year. And as always, I want to thank first Mike Ramsey. Mike and I plan the conference together each year, and I'm extremely grateful for his help. And I also want to thank Steve Smith, who helps put the conference together as well. Thanks also go to Dean Stephen Ferullo for his support for both the conference and the center. Uh, and I want to thank Trang Pham 
for uh, all the hard work that she does in organizing the conference, and also to my research assistants, Colby Stivers, Megan O'Brien, and Yarazel Meharado. So thank you all. Uh, I also want to thank Rick Stack and the Ewan and Hazel Dawling Foundation for their generous support. Their grant to the center uh, has made possible the continuation of this conference for, for eight years now, as well as a host of other activities that the center runs. Okay, well, let me now say a few words about administrative matters and how we're going to run things. Um, some of this I've sent out to you already, but just as a kind of reminder. Um, the papers will work as follows. Uh, the paper presenter will have approximately 10 minutes to um, summarize the paper, situate it, um, present their case in chief. Um, then the commentator will have approximately 10 minutes to give their comments. And then the presenter will have two to three minutes to respond. And then we'll open it up for discussion with a cue kept by the moderator. Um, to avoid the situation where the paper presenter responds to every comment made by the participants and we sort of go back and forth, um, instead we'll have a rule of three, which we've had in the past. Um, the moderator will allow three persons to speak and then give the presenter and the commentator an opportunity to respond if they wish. Uh, presenters should not feel obligated to respond to every question, although they usually do. Um, um, and the moderator will have a discretion to depart from this arrangement, not for the paper presenter or the commentator who will have plenty of opportunities but to allow one of the conference participants to interject or respond if someone has raised the point concerning their views. If someone says, oh, Steve Smith argued this, and Steve Smith doesn't think so. <laughs> Watch out for Steve Smith. Um, uh, but let's not create more than a couple of uh, these departures per session. Um, okay, well, with these announcements completed, I thought we might start the conference as we do every year by going around the room and everyone introducing themselves along with their affiliation. Mike Rappaport, University of San Diego. San Diego. John Steneford, University of Florida. Stephen Sachs, Duke. Will Bode, University of Chicago. Christina Milligan, Brooklyn Law School, and this semester a visiting scholar at Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Richard Primus, Michigan. Judd Campbell, Richmond. Ryan Williams, Boston College. Richard Ray, UCLA. David Upham, University of Dallas. Mike Ramsey, University of San Diego. Larry Solom, Georgetown. Mila Sahoni, University of San Diego. Don Drips, USD. Guy Burnett, Hamden City College. John McKyle, Georgetown. Professor Spector, San Diego. Chris Green, Ole Miss. Lance Sorensen, Stanford. Jeff Sigalet, Princeton. Mitch Berman, Penn. Larry Alexander, San Diego. Sai Prakash, University of Virginia. Michael Schwartzchild, San Diego. Steve Smith, San Diego. Jimmy Fox, Stetson. Ilias Hellman, George Mason. Uh, Brian Wildenthal, Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Tom Colby, GW. Joe McGinnis, Northwestern. Randy Barnett, Georgetown. Evan Burnick, currently at the Institute for Justice, soon to be at the Georgetown Law Center as a fellow and visiting lecturer. 